This is News Talk on the VOCM Bigland FM radio network. The views and opinions on this program are not necessarily those of this station. And now your News Talk host, Linda Swain. Well, it's Friday. You know what that means. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Richard Duggan in for Linda Swain today, who has taken the last couple of days off. Uh, Brian Callahan was in yesterday. I'm taking over the Friday shift uh, on what has been what started out uh, as a fairly slow, I guess, Friday, but things have really picked up news-wise within the last uh, couple of hours, a couple of big uh, crime, breaking crime stories that have come in. Uh, but before we get into all of that, uh, Claudette Barnes is producing the program today. Good afternoon, Claudette. Hi, Richard. So nice to be back on with you. I, I don't know. It, I feel like with every passing winter that comes now that we're getting into the colder weather, I find that I have less of a tolerance for the cold, and I'm, I'm seeing that really pronounced this week in particular. I'm so glad you brought that up because just before the show, I was talking about how there are a number of RNC officers that are doing a polar dip on Sunday. Yes, I saw that. And oh my gosh, my legs just went to ice because I just can't imagine purposefully doing that. But we, We've gone down a couple of times oh, and watched those polar dips and happen. And brave souls is all I got to yeah. say because I, like it's such a great cause but I would not be able to do it I think I'd dip my pinky toe in, into the water and I'd I'd have to <laughs> curl up in a ball and roll away <laughs> yeah, you definitely have to have somebody on standby with like blankets and stuff to keep you warm oh absolutely and 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 they do have that on on site I've seen that like they run out and some of them even like They'll sit in the water for a second. They'll spend like 20, 25 seconds before finally running back to shore. And thankfully, they have paramedics there with blankets and stuff. But again, no, wouldn't no. be me. You know, I don't know. I, I know you say it wouldn't be you. Um, and I don't want to say never say never. But uh, people do that cold water therapy for mental health a lot of the mm-hmm. times. So, I mean, it has intrigued me, even though I get cold a lot. But, like, people swear by it, right? Well, you know, it, it is is like a weird shot of serotonin right because i've done it before like um even just like at the end of a shower turning the water to cold before you get out just just for like 10 seconds i find it like revive like it wakes you up in a certainly would it it definitely wakes (laughs) you up but like i don't know it 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 provides that a a weird boost Boost. right and so but um yeah uh never say never on doing a polar dip i think that if the right cause were to come up i think i would definitely do it oh well there's yeah. a challenge call you know the phones are i'm just gonna leave them open there's gonna be so many calls wanting you to do that for charity and you know what for a good cause absolutely bring it on i might end up regret saying right? that um but claudette there is a lot on the go here today um as i mentioned uh, within the last hour we had uh, or two hours i should say we had uh, several uh, breaking news stories come in uh, to tell you about. Of course, uh, you would have heard Sarah Strickland mention uh, the story about uh, 63-year-old Dennis Murphy. He's been charged in relation to an alleged offense that occurred in St. John's earlier this week. And, uh, of course, we've had numerous uh, news stories on him in the past um, in relation to other charges that he's been brought up on. He spent time in Dorchester for uh, convictions. So uh, information on that story is online right now. And just as Sarah... 
uh, was reading the news, we had another story come in about uh, a big uh, bust out in Harbor, Maine last week. If you recall, uh, there was a, a period of time in which the RNC, or the RCMP uh, were conducting an, an operation and uh, they were asking people to stay away from the area. Well, now we have a bit more information. So two people have been charged in relation to alleged offenses there. Uh, the search of uh, a home on Ridge Road turned up handguns or a loaded handgun, ammunition, uh, pills, cash, uh, uh, stolen or allegedly stolen ATVs. Uh, so now they have two people that um, have been arrested and they're facing numerous charges in relation to that. And uh, all that information will be online uh, now, the ones at VOCN.com as well. So head on over there for the latest on that, as well as in our news at 4.30 and at 5 o'clock. Uh, just before we get into our first interview segment of the day. Wanted to uh, throw things over to uh, today's VOCM News question of the day. Uh, still loads of time, by the way, to log on and have your say on this one. Uh, do you think that government agencies are doing enough to protect people's personal information from cyber criminals? Uh, three options there. Uh, yes, I think my, my information is well protected. 8% of the vote. More should be done to protect my information. Gets 36% of the vote. And 56% of the vote says, no, I don't think my information is safe. And of course, that question uh, was spurred on from uh, news yesterday that there was a privacy breach at the city of St. John's, uh, one of their employees falling victim to a phishing scam. Uh, so if you have an opinion on that, uh, still loads of time today to head on over vocm.com and have your say on today's question of the day. So as you can tell, uh, quite a lot going on here today, uh, but we're going to go into our first uh, segment here now and uh, earlier today I had the opportunity to go down to the second annual Women in Construction Forum uh, which is going on uh, down at the Sheridan Hotel here in St. John's uh, the event which is open to all genders uh, brings to be, brings together about 200 delegates to brainstorm around topics of education training uh, and unconscious bias with the aim of applying the takeaways to uh, their member organizations while well, the keynote address over the lunch hour was delivered by Miss Canada Ashley Borzolino, who is a development inspector and operator with the city of Brantford, Ontario. I stopped by the conference ahead of her uh, big keynote address to talk with her about why she wanted to speak at the forum and some of her experiences. Well, I'm here to promote women in construction, so I'm going to be speaking about my journey, what led me here today, pageantry, and everything else in between. So tell me a little bit about your journey and maybe some of the challenges that you've faced. Of course, I'm from Ontario. I work for the City of Brantford in the Development Engineering Department. And I didn't always work there, and I haven't always been in the position that I am right now. Um, I faced a lot of adversity, a lot of judgment along the way. Uh, I've had to overcome a lot of barriers being a young woman in the industry. I am 25, uh, but when I started, of course, I was much younger than that. And uh, it's always been uh, it's always been a challenge. There's never been one task that was just kind of handed over, and it was was a breeze but I, I I appreciated that and same thing with my pageantry journey uh, there's always been uh, hiccups along the way but all those hurdles are what led me here today and to being Miss Canada 2023 and representing women in the industry really so for people who who may want to get in the industry you know they'll hear about some of those challenges and it might seem a little bit daunting how did you overcome it Oh my goodness, there were so many lessons that I had to learn along the way, and I think the number one uh, thing that, that keeps me going is just having confidence in yourself. Even when uh, you don't fully believe that you're in the place that you belong, just remember the qualities that you do have and that you are valuable, and if you have the mentality, it'll take you so much farther than you can ever imagine. What do you think about your growth, and like you said, you've been 
in the industry now for a couple of years. If you look back on where you were when you started, what do you think? Oh, I think that I have come so far, and um, I appreciate every single step that I took to get here. I think that if it was smooth sailing, I wouldn't have the appreciation for it that I do now. And I truly just want to share my experience with other young women and try to encourage them. Um, and even if it's not just for the construction industry, just in general in life, just to believe in yourself and, and don't let other people's opinions affect you because that's what's going to hold you back, and it's your life, and you should be doing the things that you enjoy. So for people who are going to hear your keynote today or hear your comments on, on our station, what do you think people's main takeaway should be from your story? Uh, the main takeaway is that life can be unfair sometimes, and that's just the reality of it. You just need to keep your head focused and, and, and remember that uh, you have so much power in you and you don't even realize it. So just keep going, and eventually you'll get to the path and get to the destination without even realizing. So now there's a lot more going on at, at this conference. What are some of your thoughts now as you've been here for, for the first little bit of this conference today, and, and what are some of the conversations that you've been having? I've heard a lot of people um, that have had similar experiences to myself, and it's very refreshing um, to hear these women speak and to be so confident into sharing their stories because not all of them have been wonderful. Um, but I'm really, I'm really appreciative, and I'm really glad to be here today. So I'm just, I'm just so honored. What do you think it says to see a, a room full of, of women like this and, and, and all working towards such similar goals? It just displays what unity can really do. It, it shows that uh, teamwork is so much more important than we might realize and that we do have a good working team of women behind us. Um, we just kind of need to look for it a little bit harder, but it's there. Yeah, I just want to tell everybody that um, you just need to be confident in yourself and you need to be proud of every single accomplishment in your life, whether it's big or small. Everything is valuable and you are valuable. Now, look at that. See, I got caught up talking to Claudette Barnes off the air. and <laughs> I will take full responsibility for that. I just literally would not shut up. So. <laughs> Always a great conversation, Claudette. So no, no worries about that. <laughs> Actually, Claudette's the one that, that alerted me to the fact. She's like, Ricky, there's dead air. So I <laughs> ran back into the studio. <laughs> um but yes, so that what you just heard was Ashley Borzolino uh, from the Women in Construction Forum that was taking place at the Sheraton Hotel earlier today, and she delivered a keynote address. Uh, so you just heard some of her comments. Uh, we're going to take a quick break here now on News Talk. When we come back, we're going to go back to this conference. Uh, we're going to speak to uh, a woman who participated in the Youth Industry Panel at that same event. Uh, we'll be right back after this. This is News Talk. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions. Plus, interviews with today's newsmakers. Your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays. Your VOCM mornings. And welcome back to the program. Richard Duggan in with you this afternoon. We're going to go back now to the Women in Construction Forum, which was on the go today at the Sheraton Hotel in St. John's. And down at the conference, I spoke with Ghana Ahmed. Uh, she participated in the Youth Industry Panel at uh, this morning's event. And uh, I spoke with her about what was discussed at that panel and her experience at the conference. 
So I participated in the youth panel for today's forum, and it was a group of us youth girls, uh, young women in engineering, uh, who have dived into the construction industry, and we just gave a brief discussion about our challenges and our achievements in the industry and what we'd like to see for it in the years to come as women who are wanting to continue working in that industry. Um, so a lot of our messages were directed towards uh, academic institutions or large corporations who are fueling the construction industry, or even just associations who can help us with mentorship opportunities or help us uh, battle our challenges or continue striving in our achievements. So what are some of the big challenges for you? So as an international student who's about to graduate from one, most of the challenges that I face uh, have to do with being new to the country and new to the industry. Uh, being a product of the co-op program at MUN, where I've had the exposure to multiple work terms in the industry, I still s find that there's still some gaps that we need to bridge in regards to how the how our academic institutions attach us to the industry, whereas they don't really coincide with what work actually is what work actually is happening in the industry. Uh, we'd like to see uh, the construction industry mimic the kind of diversity that we have in our institution, the kind of diversity that we have coming into Newfoundland every year. Um, another challenge I face as well is the lack of exposure to women working in the construction industry. I'd like to see that being fixed through mentorship programs or a task force where I'm able to work with other women professionals in the industry. Do you think that we're on the right track in terms of addressing some of those challenges? I definitely do think that there has been a lot of progress in the past couple of years. Uh, when I started working in the industry, I was 19 years old, and now I'm 22, and I'm definitely surrounded by more women in the field. Um, however, I do think that our progress is very stagnant compared to what we want it to be like in the upcoming years. Uh, I think in order to be able to sustain the construction industry in Newfoundland with the amount of diversity that we're having in our province nowadays, we need progress to uh, happen at a much faster pace and, and, and at a greater volume than what we are experiencing right now. What made you want to get into the industry? Uh, I wanted to get into industry because I, I am a civil engineering student and uh, when I got my very first taste of it through my work terms, um, I was so pleased with how my skills were able to transfer uh, into the work I was doing and how my interests aligned perfectly with what these big corporations were doing. And it was I, from, the, from the very minute I was in it, I knew that that was exactly what I wanted to do. And so I'm trying my best to be able to, to sustain a future uh, in the industry for my years to come. What would you say to other young women who are, are thinking about getting into the industry? Uh, I would like to say that there's definitely room for more women in the industry. There's definitely going to be more room for women in the, in the, in the industry. It's definitely a really good really good industry to be a part of. You uh, will be able to develop a really large skill set, um, and it's something that we need to sustain for our province for years to come. So it's definitely the place to be if your skills and interests align with it. Now, there's a lot going on at this conference. What are your just overall thoughts on being here and, and being in the same room as others who are sort of going through the same things that you're going through? I think it's the best thing to ever happen. I think it's exactly what we needed. Uh, we needed the exposure to other professionals in the industry. We needed exposure to uh, how the construction industry allows for more trades. Uh, we needed the exposure uh, for the different cultures present today at the forum. Like all us uh, international workers and students, us being able to be here, uh, that only displays the bright future that we have for Newfoundland in the years to come.
And that was uh, Ghana Ahmed from the uh, Women in Construction Forum uh, earlier today at the Sheraton Hotel in St. John's. Earlier, we heard from Ashley Borzolino uh, from that same conference. Uh, about 200 people gathered at the Sheraton earlier today for that conference around topics on education, training, on unca- unconscious bias uh, in the industry. Uh, and just from being down there, quite a large uh, uh, group assembled at the Sheraton for that conference. Um, now, Claudette, when we do the show next week or when you do the show with Linda when she's back next week, uh, one big difference that you'll probably notice is that it's going to be dark outside oh. by the time you get off the air. Yeah, that's because it's all starting on Sunday, right? Yeah, the clocks go back on Sunday, uh, 2 a.m. They go back by one hour and we quote unquote gain an hour of sleep, although if you're a parent or have animals that does not happen (laughs) that is so true you know i always say that i look forward to the one hour sleep but in reality yeah no because there's always something on the go no you think you're gonna get one hour of sleep and then (laughs) your body's like no no you're not you're instead of waking up at 6 a.m you're now waking up at 5 a.m mister um but anyway that is happening this weekend and uh st john's regional fire department and uh, other levels of government are encouraging people to use this uh yearly uh, event as a reminder to check on your smoke alarms check the batteries that are in them make sure that they are in working order um so earlier today i spoke with captain Kara party of the st john's regional fire department uh to talk about what people need to know about checking their fire alarms it's really important to check your fire alarms once every month, and we send out the reminder when the clocks go ahead and, and in the spring and go back in the fall to change your batteries because it's a good time to put the two and two together. You know you have to change your clock, so when we send out the notice to change your batteries, it, it, the more we do it, the more inclined people are to remember it. Um, it's imperative to have fresh batteries in your smoke alarms and carbon monoxide alarms all the time because they're what's going to save your life if something happens in the middle of the night. Batteries that are no good, that are dead, your smoke alarm's not going to work, and your life, chances of surviving will be cut in half. So what should people be looking for, and how, how should people go about this when they do go and check their alarms? They can test them simply by pressing the test button that's on the front of the alarm. Their new alarms will have a date on them that says they need to be replaced by a certain year. So have a look at yours. If there's no date on it, then that's a good indication that it's due to be replaced. Smoke alarms are only good for 10 years. After 10 years, there's no guarantee that the sensor that's in them is going to work the way it's intended to work. Sometimes they will give out before the 10 years is up. So if for some reason yours starts beeping and there's no reason for it to beep, um, if the batteries are low, you'll get an intermittent beep every minute or so, but they can just start beeping for no reason. So if it's not because of the battery... And even if it is less than 10 years old, then there's a good chance it needs to be replaced. Carbon monoxide alarms are typically only good for five years, so those are different than your your smoke alarms. Always important to follow the manufacturer's instructions when it comes to how often they should be replaced. The... Uh, there's a new type of 
smoke alarm that's out on the market now. It has a 10-year lithium-ion battery that's sealed and never needs to be replaced. So your battery will last the lifetime of your smoke alarm. So that's ideal. We often hear of people taking the batteries out because they get false alarms from cooking or from the shower and it's becoming a pain for them having to, you know, get the, the tea towel and brush the smoke away from the smoke alarm so they take the battery out and then they forget to put it back in so this 10-year sealed battery people can't take it out so we know that it's it's going to do what it's supposed to do because we can't remove the battery do you find that a lot of people don't do the the proper regular checks on their alarms um when we go out to do public education at different facilities whether it's in a school or a business or an apartment building or a condo building It's surprising how many people don't realize that they should be testing them once a month, that they should be changing their batteries twice a year, and replacing their smoke alarms every 10 years. So the more we can get that word out, the better. Your life depends on it. It's so important to make sure your smoke alarms are working and that they're not more than 10 years old. If a fire happens in the middle of the night, you're not going to know without your smoke alarm. You're not going to smell the smoke because you're sleeping. Um, Smoke alarms are required to be installed on every level of your home, including your basement. A lot of people think that people don't live down there, so we don't need one. You need one in your basement. And you're required to have them in your bedrooms as well. So every room that somebody sleeps in should have a smoke alarm inside that room. The reason for that, if you think back to... 20, 30, 40 years ago, we didn't have a whole lot in our bedrooms that would catch fire. We had a clock radio, maybe, and a lamp. We weren't charging phones and tablets and laptops. And of course, the fire department, we always tell people to sleep with their door closed. So if a fire were to start in your bedroom and your door is closed, it's going to be a long time before the smoke alarm in the hallway outside of your room goes off. So because we've changed what we're doing in our bedrooms with more electronic devices, the code changed to reflect that. So now we have to have them in our bedrooms. So if something should happen, then the smoke alarm in the room will alert you to what's going on and give you time to get out safely. Captain Carapardi, thank you so much for your time today on this. Is there anything else that you'd like to say or anything else that people should know before I let you go? Make sure you test your smoke alarms and change your batteries this weekend so you can be sure that you're going to be safe in your home. And there you have it. That's Captain Kara Party of the St. John's Regional Fire Department, and you can't make the message any clearer than that. Uh, Folks, check your fire or uh, smoke alarms this weekend. Change out their batteries. Make sure sure that they are in working order. Uh, Could save your life. All right, on that note, I know Sarah Strickland is waiting uh, over in the newsroom uh, for your 4.30 news update, and we'll have more on News Talk after this. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News Talk on your VOCM. Well, thank you very much, Sarah, and welcome back to the program on this relatively calm weather-wise Friday afternoon, although it looks like it won't stay that way for long for some. Um, Now we're going to take you back to a conversation that was had on VOCM Open Line this morning. Uh, Stable Life Equine Therapy had to temporarily halt its services due to a shortage of funds. However, they have now successfully resumed operations. Stable Life Program Director Aaron Gallant says thanks to government funding, they were 
are able to reopen at full capacity. She speaks with Patty Daly on VOCM Open Line. So we provide free mental health services um, using horses as the therapeutic tool, I guess you would say, um, to help people on their journey. We have um, a professional counselor on staff as well as uh, certified peer supporters, and uh, we use kind of a, the horse as a tool that helps people um, reflect on their emotions and what's going on through, with their life, as well as just your traditional talk therapy, but sometimes we're brushing a horse while we're doing it. What does the presence of the horse mean? Because to me, it comes, uh, you know, and I don't know much about your program, unfortunately, but like roots of empathy. You bring a baby into a, a child's classroom, and it's all about the empathy for the baby, knowing that they're reliant on you and your kindness for the baby to be happy and healthy. What does the horse mean for people who use your program? So the horse uh, can represent a lot of different things, but first, um, right off the bat, is this sort of sense of comfort and no judgment. Um, you know, and a lot of our people that come suffer with anxiety, um, you know, are a little bit nervous maybe coming into our program, and although they might be afraid of horses, I've heard people tell me that they are offered a sense of calm from the horse, and, you know, within the first hour, usually, we have somebody going from being um, nervous and afraid to interacting with the horse, brushing it, feeding it, touching it. Um, so the horse can offer or represent, sorry, so many different things. Um, sometimes it's their, just their sheer strength. People draw strength from the, the size of the animal, um, not just emotional strength, but, you know, the, the presence that they feel from the horse, the energy that comes off the horse, it just makes people feel better. This might be a strange question, but I'm going to ask it. Do the horses need any required training, or do you have to vet, do you have to vet the horse? Because some can be quite jittery and maybe not offer that sense of calm. So how about the horses? So certainly all of the horses that we have, um, they, they haven't gone through a specific training program, but they have been vetted a little bit. Um, you know, we, we do have one at our barn who does not get used in the program because he is not suitable. Um, and horses, just like people, can have good days and bad days. But uh, in general, they had to be well-mannered, um, allow people to touch them and be calm. They don't have to be rideable because we're not a, necessarily a riding program. Not to say that riding can't be part of your um, program, but uh, first off the bat, it's on the ground with the horses. Um, and, you know, when, if we have a horse that's not suitable maybe for handling, sometimes, which we do have, his name's Wilson. He's a lovely Newfoundland pony, but he's absolutely no good to handle because he's just had a traumatic history himself and his traumatic story brings benefit to the people who are, are working with him, uh, with him but they work from a distance so we might just observe him in the field we might just watch him in in his stall um, and you know a lot of times people share the same story that he has which is why they're drawn to him which is why I keep him around and I love him even though he's, he's bad <laughs> we, we love him <laughs> how do people get involved with your organization so you can self-refer. Um, we try to keep everything as barrier-free as possible, so there's no big form. Um, there's a, a very short online um, uh, booking system. You just have to fill out your name and your email address and pick a time. Uh, we were providing transportation as well for people. Um, we're not currently doing that right at this time, um, but we hope to get that back up and going. But if you go on our website at spirithorsenl.com or if you go to any of our social media and look up Spirit Horse NL, um, you'll see our booking system on there. But you can also send us an email. You know, we have a lot of referrals as well through Eastern Health, from the Janeway, um, from other practitioners out there who know about what we're doing. I get a lot of emails that say, you know, my doctor told me about this program and they think I should try it. So that's, that's really exciting to hear that, you know, the, the bigger uh, medical world is seeing the value in sort of our non-traditional alternative service.
I'm trying to recall if I remember stories about, you know, formal relationships, for instance, like with the Department of Justice and Public Safety and maybe bringing your program to Her Majesty's Penitentiary. Did that happen? Yep, it did. We were the first place in Canada, actually, that um, got permission to bring horses inside a, uh, a men's maximum security prison and offer a program. Um, we did that for five years. It was called from the center of the pen. Um, I still have a little red corral, uh, what we call a round pen, uh, up inside um, the fences of um, HMP. Um, and we didn't get back there this summer and only got there twice last summer due to staffing issues, as we've all heard about how bad the staffing is at HMP right now. Um, so we couldn't get there, but we hope to be back. I didn't take down the corral because I feel if I take it down, then we won't be back. <laughs> so I'll, I'll leave it there. It's probably busted and I probably need a new one. We also used to travel out to Clarenville as well. Um, we didn't get there as often as we liked because the heat became a problem. Um, so shipping horses in a horse trailer um, is quite quite a big um, undertaking and quite stressful. Um, but we do have a partner out in Glovertown now that we're hoping, uh, because they're a little bit closer, that um, once things are back up and running, um, you know, we might be able to do that again. But that is very seasonal. That's in the summertime for, for Clarenville and for HMP. In that setting, it must be fascinating work. How is it received, not only by the inmates, but what do the correctional officers and the correctional officers' management at both of the facilities say about the impact it had on them and their inmates? Uh, it was a huge impact. So um, we did do a study um, uh, on it and have a, a paper and everything that we put together. But it was really cool when we would go in the beginning and, of course, we were just setting up. And before the inmates came out for program, the staff would always come over and say, can I, can I touch the horse? You know, they'd come out on their lunch break and they'd, they'd have a little, little um, look at what we're doing and, and get to touch the horses. So there was a little bit of staff benefit there, too, because um, we know, of course, being a corrections officer and working in that setting is extremely stressful. Um, so before the inmates, to come out they would they would be a little bit hands-on and uh the reaction from um the participants um involved in the justice program was just amazing you know at first they all kind of thought well what is this right are we, are we going riding are we going playing with ponies and they kind of joked about it and i was like no this is serious stuff we're going to talk about your addiction and mental health and you know not not why you're here or what land did you hear because that doesn't matter but you know when when we work with the horse the horse doesn't know it's out of prison nor does it care and uh, you know I don't judge as a peer supporter the horses don't judge so it really leveled the field for everybody and made everybody feel just human again um, with no judgment and you're outside and you know what people say about idle hands so it all makes sense to me how did the funding come about this go around is there a very specific pot of money that you apply for or just tell us what happened so this time I just wrote a general proposal because um, uh, we've been we've been applying to many different um, programs, you know, both provincially, federally, uh, all over the place, looking for little grants here and there to keep us going. Um, and I finally said that what I'm going to do is I'm going to reach out to the government and say, like, we, we really need core funding. Um, although what we did receive is not core funding as such. It is a one-time um, pot of funds for now to keep us going. It's, I wrote out and I, I made a proposal basically said I need this much to get us get us through. Um, so it will hold us over and allow me to go and look for federal funding because there's lots of that, that out there as well. Um, I've you know, met and spoke with um, our MP, Joanne Thompson, and she said, like, here's all the things you can apply for. So that's actually what we're doing. It's day one, we started applying for, as we opened on Monday, or sorry, Wednesday, uh, when we applied, opened, we started applying for some um, federal funds, and we're hoping that, you know, those are long process things, so we're hoping that we'll see some of that come through as well. I have lots of friends in the not-for-profit and charitable world, and they, to a man, to a woman, will say most of their time is spent 
filling out paperwork, filling out applications versus actually doing what the core mandate of their organization would be? Just how arduous a task is it? It's horrible. And it, when, you, when you apply for all these pots of funding and you, you put so much time and effort into it, and when you don't get one, it's like what a waste of, you know, a week or two weeks sometimes because, you know, it's all you're thinking about and you put, pour all your heart and soul into it. Um, and it's not even for your own benefit. It's for the benefit of the people that you know can help with. So um, I wish there was an easier process to do it. Um, you know, I sometimes feel like it's luck of the draw. I almost don't even think they read the applications. I'm sure they do, but <laughs> that's how it feels. Um, and, you know, there's people that work with us who are writing grants, and I've, I've written some myself um, and been successful sometimes, not successful other times. But it, what you really want to be do is, is doing the frontline work because – we don't, most not-for-profits don't get um, a big pot of funds to have just one person whose sole job is just to write grants. Instead, that person wears many hats, and, and that's exactly what happens in our organization. You know, one morning, the person who helps writing grants might be helping run a session or cleaning out stalls or, you know, doing all the, all the other things besides just writing grants. Because if you get too distant and, and hands-off from the actual work, then you don't you're not passionate about your grants that you're writing. So I think it's important that the same people are involved. Government is paperwork intense, always is. You would imagine a better approach for government and for organizations like yours is you get the establishment of core funding. And annually, as opposed to reapplying, you just submit a report about how the funds worked last year. If it looked like you're having some successes and moving forward and benefiting the community, then it's a rollover, as opposed to all the time that you and others spend filling out grant applications. Uh, so last, one, last thoughts to you, Aaron, what you need people to know or what they want to do if they'd like to engage with you. Um, well, of course, we're always accepting donations because um, that's what we run on right now. Our charitable status uh, is in the like uh, processing phase, so we haven't heard back if that's been accepted or not. And that, of course, is another long <laughs> process um, where it can take six months to a year just after you've submitted your application to hear back on that. Um, but if people want to donate to us, by all means, if you go on our website or our social media, there are um, places where you can um, donate, and that those um, monies go towards helping feed the horses, helping keep the lights on. I've really tried to allocate the money that we have received to put that towards staff costs. But, you know, our, our horses are staffed as well, <laughs> and they probably cost more than our actual staff do uh, in the long run. Um, so we certainly um, would love for people to, to reach out and help us. And we will be having more fundraisers. You'll see some things popping up around Christmas that we always do to, to stay involved in the community and through the winter. And uh, we're, we're just so grateful for the support um, and, and sort of the, the reach that our story has had. And there you have it. That is Program Director Erin Galland of Stable Life uh, speaking with, uh, or speaking on rather, uh, VOCM Open Line with Patty Daly earlier today. Uh, now, just before we go to a break, a little bit of an update now for a story that we've had uh, for you throughout the afternoon. Uh, police in central Newfoundland have been looking for a man on their wanted list, Nathan Hancott, uh, but they also say that they're concerned for his safety and well being. Well, we just got this update. Um, 
they say that information suggests that he may be traveling in a 2007 red Mazda CX-7 with a Newfoundland license plate of JFA319. So anyone with information about his current location or any information on the location of that vehicle uh, is asked to contact the Grand Falls Windsor RCMP um, at 709-489-2121. Again, uh, that is a 2007 red Mazda CX-7 with a Newfoundland and Labrador license plate of JFA319. All right, on that note, we are going to go to a break right now, and uh, when we come back, uh, we'll have the last leg of News Talk for this week here on your VOCM. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. And welcome back to the program. Well, cruise ship season in the province has come to a close. The Insignia, with 400 passengers on board, arrived in Cornerbrook this morning. And after that cruise ship left, there are no more expected this year until well into 2024. Ross Klein is a MUN professor who has written extensively on the cruise ship industry. And he spoke this morning on your VOCM Mornings with Jerry Lynn Mackey. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, the last cruise ship visit for the province in Cornerbrook, what kind of a season has it been from your perspective? Well, I think Cornerbrook has done quite well. Um, you know, it certainly as compared to to St. John's. Uh, p- p- part of it, I mean, they've they've had a good a good number of ships, but their geographic location gives them, in some ways, some advantages. Um, I mean, to me, it was it, it's kind of driven home in terms of the insignia of being there today. I was in Quebec City this for the past uh, several days, and the, the insignia stopped there on the way to Montreal, and then on the way back from Montreal, and of course, Cornerbrook is next. It's a it's kind of a natural extension of ships going up the St. Lawrence. And what do you think? Is it back to normal now for cruises worldwide or has COVID changed the industry forever? Um, well, I think it's getting back to normal for a consumer in terms of the the kinds of uh, the kinds of itineraries that, that are out there. But certainly, the, the industry itself has had to make up for lost revenues and, and changes. So, uh, someone who hasn't who has cruised before will probably see that onboard revenue, the, the cost of things <clears throat> once you're on board, <clears throat> has increased. Uh, that the ships are working much much more diligently to be sure that they're again, making money off the passengers once they're there. Uh, Also, ships are now back up to over 100 percent occupancy, meaning uh, you're not going to be on a ship that's going to be sparsely populated. It's going to be more than two people per cabin. And so it's, you know, it it means the industry is doing well, but as a consumer, you know, there's positives and negatives. And what do you think? Is there a sense of yet of any real value of what each passenger is spending while at port? Well, the spending in port is is hard to gauge because there is, uh, unless you do your own research, that is, unless the city of Cornerbrook does its own research, there's no way for them to really know. <clears throat> we did an independent study that included St. John's. Um, this was be, this would be a couple of years ago, uh, before COVID-19, and the spending that we that we recorded, we we um, we interviewed passengers from every single ship that stopped here, and we found that the amount of spending was, was certainly less than what the industry claimed. Uh, it was more like thirty-five or forty dollars uh, average per person, which you know isn't isn't trivial. But at the same time, it's not the hundred dollars per person that the industry would claim. 
Yes, uh, we're about to play a piece where I was chatting with some passengers and, and most opted to maybe get a beverage in St. John's, but for the most part, they were staying on the vessel to eat. Oh, of course, because they've already paid for their food. Um, so they would, they would go ashore, maybe yeah, have, have a beverage. Uh, may, may, they, they may be captured by, you know, let's say a T-shirt or some other kind of some other kind of thing in the store. But it's a, it's a hard sell, and particularly if the weather's not ideal, uh, people are less inclined to get off the ship anyway. I'm speaking with Ross Klein, a MUN professor who has written extensively on the cruise ship industry. Ross, have you got any advice for anyone who's considering a cruise right now? Well, I, I would uh, go with where you want to, what you want to see, where you want to go. Um, I certainly wouldn't hold back, um, but I think carefully in terms of well, what size ship do I want to be on. <clears throat> some of the some of the, the newer ships are up to seven thousand passengers. <clears throat> that's not for everyone. You may want a ship that's maybe you know two or three thousand, or even less than one thousand. But I think ship size is an important factor, uh, and certainly the quality of the product. The most common brands are our Royal Caribbean, Carnival, and Norwegian cruise lines, but they're doing what's called a mass market product. So it's it's like going to um, I, I was saying a Holiday Inn, but not even a Holiday Inn. It's 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 a it's a basic product. So if that's what you want, it's perfectly fine. But if you want something a bit uh, perhaps a bit more refined, then there's other cruise lines to look at. Where and when are the best bargains? Well, it used to be you could get uh, better bargains as you got closer to the date because they're trying to fill cabins. Uh, it seems now that they're trying to work the other way, and that is uh, give good bargains with maybe uh, six months to a year ahead. And then those begin to dwindle a bit as it's just become full. Now, par- part of that for them is that if you make a reservation and put money down, they now have your money, which makes it difficult for you to change your mind. But they're also earning income on the money that you've given them. What about trends that are forming in the industry? Is, is it moving towards mega cruises or are like smaller luxury cruises more popular? <laughs> Well, I, I think the, the mega cruises, as I mentioned before, kind of the Carnival, the Royal Caribbean ships with 7,000 passengers, or MSC ships with six or 7,000 passengers, that's really growing. And, uh, uh, you know, for some people, that would be frightening. The expedition market, that would be small ships that go to uh, int- more interesting locations. And we see some of those ships here in St. John's and in Corner Brook. Uh, that market is also expanding, but it's they're smaller ships, so it's 100 to 200 passengers, so it's, it's not a huge impact. Uh, the other thing that's happening is the the river cruises are, are really uh, expanding widely, not just in Europe, but also in parts of the U.S. Uh, and other parts of the world. So I think for someone who wants to have a ship experience, but not necessarily be at sea, the river cruises certainly provide a an alternative, uh, though they're not sold as as competitively priced as would, let's say, a Carnival or a Royal Caribbean cruise. What is your best prediction for 2024? In terms of uh, our province? Yes. I I think we're going to see continuing growth of the industry. Uh, My my largest concern, because I think Cornerbrook has some real opportunity and potential, and I, I look forward to that expanding. What I find with St. John's is the, 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 the cruise season here is sort of 
the city's at the mercy of the industry. So there was all kinds of excitement at the beginning of the year about, oh, this is going to be a banner year. We're now at the end of the year, and there were 11,000 less passengers than what they got excited about. So I think St. John's is going to be rocky. I'm not sure I would predict a negative, but I'm not going to predict a positive either. And there you have it. That is Ross Klein speaking on your VOCM Mornings uh, with Jerry Lynn Mackey about the past cruise ship season, the cruise ship season that just ended, and what we might be able to expect in 2024. All right, that just about does it uh, for us here today on News Talk. Thank you so much for tuning in. Hope you all have a great weekend. Linda Swain will be back on Monday. And now let's get ready for the Day in Review with Sarah Strickland.